Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. If you haven't actually said it, have you at least thought it? Probably. And it's usually after making a big decision. Don't you love it when someone tells you what Consumer Reports has to say after you've bought a car or a major appliance? You know, major decisions are hard to make. And once we do, most of us like to close the door and keep the matter settled. But most decisions, by necessity, are made before all the facts are in. Now, we try to make informed decisions, but it's impossible to know everything before we make a decision. And that is especially true when it comes to religion. If we waited until we knew everything about every religion before making a decision, we would never decide what to believe. There's no way we could read every holy book and study the writings of every theologian and philosopher would die of old age before getting the job done. So what do we do? Well, most of us Look to those we respect for spiritual guidance. We examine the beliefs that they have accepted and see if they adequately answer the questions we have. And if they do, we adopt them as our own, at least provisionally. Most of us realize we should never nail shut the door of our minds. The Apostle Paul did admonish us not to allow ourselves to be tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. But we must remember that religious decisions are always made before all the facts are in. And we should therefore be willing to rethink our decisions, conclusions, and assumptions when they're called into question by others or by life itself. Now, rethinking our beliefs does not demonstrate a lack of faith, nor does it destroy faith. It can, in fact, strengthen our faith, even if it does cause us to make some adjustments to it. Now, thinking is never easy. And rethinking something we thought we had settled is even harder for most of us to do. But in our text for today, we find Jesus forcing a man to rethink his religion. And in the process, he found himself rethinking Jesus, rethinking righteousness, and rethinking commitment. I realize that Easter is primarily a time for Christians to celebrate what they believe, but I don't think it will hurt us to rethink our beliefs as well. In fact, it might do us all a lot of good. We're studying in Luke's Gospel, the 18th chapter. 
And a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this encounter. But only Luke tells us the man was a ruler. It's a general term and probably indicates he was a member of some official council or court. Matthew tells us he was a young man. And all three make it clear that he was wealthy. When we tie them together, we conclude that he was a rich, young ruler. And this is how we generally refer to him. Luke introduces him by merely stating that he questioned Jesus. Mark tells us that he ran up to Jesus and knelt before him before asking the question. Obviously, the man held Jesus in high regard. And the question was one he felt very important, important enough to publicly prostrate himself before the one he thought might be able to answer it. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Like most, he assumed he had to do something, something more than he was already doing to obtain eternal life. And so he sought out a teacher he thought to be good. In fact, he addressed Jesus as good teacher. Now, this was very unusual. Jews never called their rabbis good. They insisted that God and the law were the only things that were truly good. What was this man doing? What was he saying? Was he merely attempting to show that he held Jesus in unusually high regard as a teacher? Was he being extremely respectful, searching for what he thought might be an appropriate title, like some do? When they call a preacher reverend, was he saying something very profound? Well, Jesus pressed him to make him think through what he was actually saying. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is not denying that he is God here. And he's not chastising the man for calling him good. He simply wanted to know that if by calling him good, the ruler really did recognize that he was, in fact, God. And if he hadn't really thought about it, Jesus wanted him to rethink who he might be. And that is certainly the place where everyone should start rethinking religion by rethinking Jesus. Who is he, really? How is he different from all other religious leaders? What did he actually do 2,000 years ago? Did he really rise from the dead? What claims did he make about himself? And why should we believe him? These are crucial questions. And how you answer them makes all the difference in the world and in the world to come. Few would deny that Jesus was a great religious leader and a master teacher, a really good teacher 
in the sense of excellence without even considering his moral goodness. But you know, he must be far more to us than a good teacher. There have been lots of good teachers, and many of them have changed lives, even entire cultures, by teaching high moral and ethical standards. But only one of them claimed to be the Son of God and proved it by rising from the dead. So Jesus has to be more to us than a good teacher because he is more than a good teacher. He is the only begotten Son of God, the one who actually shares the very nature of God. He is God, has always been God, and will always be God. He took on flesh and lived among us and showed us what God is like. But even knowing that and trying to be like him is not enough. Because following Jesus' example will never obtain for us eternal life. And he did come to earth to give us eternal life. In fact, he came to earth to enable us to become sons of God. He came to earth to make it possible for us to actually enter into union with the Father through his Son. We've been trying to wrap our heads around that on Sunday evenings by reading the thoughts of C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. And, and quite frankly, the more you think about it, the more difficult it is to comprehend. But that should never stop us from rethinking Jesus. It is true that we can accept him as our Savior without fully understanding all there is to know about him. In fact, we all do just that. But we should never confine Jesus to a box of our own making and settle for a Jesus who is far less than he really is. The more we know about him, the more we stand in awe of him. And the more we know about him, the more we want to be like him and to share in his life. But still, as long as we're in the flesh, we will never be as good as he is. We will never be absolutely good. Even if we lived perfect lives from this day forward, the stain of previous sin would keep us from being declared good. Only Jesus was good. Good enough to pay the penalty for our sin and live. And that forces us to not only rethink Jesus, but also to rethink righteousness. Verses 20 and 21. Jesus is answering him. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. The rich young ruler wanted to know what he should do to inherit eternal life. So Jesus first pointed him to the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. 
Jesus listed for him the readily identifiable sins that he could use to examine himself. And his immediate response was, hey, no problem. All these things I've kept from my youth. And he really did think that he had obeyed the commandments. He hadn't committed adultery. He hadn't murdered anyone. He didn't steal. He didn't lie. He honored his parents. He was convinced that he had obeyed the commandments. Apparently, however, he hadn't heard Jesus teach that to be angry with someone makes us as guilty before the court as those who carry out their anger and murder them. Or that if we lust after someone, we've already committed adultery in our heart. Nor did he remember the psalm that Paul would later quote in Romans 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Nor did he understand the real purpose of the law, as Paul would explain in Romans 3.20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, he thought the law had been given to enable God's people to live obedient lives. But in reality, all it had done was make it very evident that they couldn't. And even if they had been able to obey most of the laws, breaking just one of them would be enough to condemn them. For as James would write, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Breaking one part of the law makes one into a lawbreaker and condemns him just as readily as if he had broken every law. And even the rich young ruler had surely noted that in spite of his insistence that he had kept them all, it really was hard to tell if you had fully kept some of them. How could you tell if you had honored your parents to the extent required by the law. Apparently, he hadn't openly rebelled against them or disrespected them. But had he always done everything they wanted him to do? If he was so certain that he had obeyed all the laws, why did he feel the need to do more? Why wasn't he sure of his standing before God? Why was he looking to Jesus? to tell him something more to do. The reason was quite simply because we can never do enough to feel acceptable or comfortable in the presence of a holy God. Our works can never give us the assurance that we have earned standing before God. We can compare ourselves with others and feel pretty good but if we compare ourselves with perfection, absolute goodness, we always come up short. And we can never do enough to overcome it. 
worshiping regularly, meeting religious obligations, and living a good life will never bring us peace of mind before God. Even reading our Bible and praying for an hour a day only leaves us wondering if God might not expect more. Obviously, we've got to rethink how to acquire righteousness and rethink what the Bible has to say about the righteousness we think we are earning. Didn't Isaiah say our righteous deeds are nothing but a filthy garment? And didn't Jeremiah tell us that even if we washed ourselves with lye soap, the stain of our iniquity would still be there? It takes the blood of Christ to wash away the stain of sin. Only He can make us clean. Only He can make us acceptable in the sight of God. And the sooner we acknowledge that, the sooner we will be able to stop looking for something else to assuage our conscience. And the sooner we will be able to find peace before God. So let's rethink righteousness and where it comes from. And what it cost Christ to make it available to us. Doing so, however, will challenge us to also rethink our commitment. Because when we really realize what Christ did for us, we are forced to reexamine what we are willing to do for him. Verse 22. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. I'm sure that if he had been asked, the ruler would have insisted that he loved God. He had committed himself to keeping God's law. Jesus didn't argue the fact. He simply put him to the test. One thing you lack, sell all your possessions. Now, Jesus wasn't telling him how to earn eternal life. You don't earn it by selling your possessions and giving everything to the poor. He was simply trying to make this man rethink his level of commitment to God. He thought he was religious. He had great respect for Jesus. He tried to follow the law. He thought he loved God. But when put to the test, it became evident that he loved things more than God. For as we will discover next week, he could not give up his riches. There were limits to his commitment. And Jesus forced him to recognize it. 
What about us? Where do we draw the line on commitment? What wouldn't you give up to follow Christ? Jesus knew that material possessions held too firm a grip on the rich man's heart, so he required him to give them up. He has not required all of us to do the same. He's allowed us to keep most of the things he has entrusted to us and even to enjoy them. But he has asked that we acknowledge that they do belong to him. And we do that by tithing and by using them in ways that honor him and bless others. But if he said you had to give up everything, would you? If he asked you to do something you really did not want to do, would you? If he put the level of your commitment to the test, would you pass the test? Maybe it's a good time to rethink your commitment to him. And the best way to deepen your level of commitment to him is to first rethink Jesus and what he's done for you. He died, was buried, and rose again for you. Are you willing to do the same to express your faith in him? In fact, is there anything you won't do to demonstrate your commitment to him? How can there be? Think about it. And then surrender everything to him. If you need to demonstrate your commitment to the lordship of Jesus today, I invite you to come. Now is the time to surrender your all. Let's stand. All to Jesus I surrender One has come this morning to surrender his all to the Lordship of Jesus, accompanied by his wife. I know there are others who need to take the step of faith that Jim is taking today. If there's something keeping you from full commitment to the Lordship of Christ, I pray you'll give it up and you'll come and surrender to his Lordship. Let's sing that last verse. Oh.
Unto Jesus I surrender, Lord, I give myself to Thee. Fill me with Thy love and power. Let Thy blessing fall on me. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Be seated, please. 